Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. My name's David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Robert Cagnati of Partners Group. Partners Group is a Swiss-based global investor in private equity uh, that has more than 1,000 employees and over 80 billion Australian dollars invested in the private equity space, which makes them a global leader in this area. I will also disclose that I'm an investor in this fund and have recommended it for clients in the past. Uh, I also wish to emphasize and highlight to clients that this podcast is not uh, a recommendation for them to invest. And of course, all people should make that investment decision after doing their due diligence and seeking their own specific advice for their circumstances. Of course, there is a disclaimer at the end of the podcast that I encourage people to listen to in full. We talk specifically about the Partners Global Value Fund, which has returned 9.9% compound annual growth over the last 10 years, which is a fantastic return, considering also the very low volatility that it's experienced that makes it particularly attractive to investors. Please keep the feedback coming. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. And remember to like, provide your feedback on the platform that you're listening to and remember to share the podcast where you think appropriate. Thanks a lot and enjoy this episode with Robert Cagnati of Partners Group. Roberto Cagnati, welcome to Inside the Rope. Good morning. Roberto, if we could start off, if you could perhaps give us a little bit of an understanding of your role with Partners Group. I've got your bio as being a, the co-head of portfolio management uh, and a member of the Global Portfolio Committee, um, and you're based in Zoo. Can you can you just give us a bit of a background as to what that means and what you do? I'm happy to. So as co-head of portfolio management, um, and as portfolio managers more broadly, we're in charge of the fund manager role of the various offerings, and that affects mainly our semi-liquid evergreen offerings, such as the Global Value Fund, but also some of the segregated mandates. So we do everything top-down, portfolio construction, asset allocation, relative value views, besides the diligence on the actual deals, which is carried out by the investment teams. Okay. And Tell us a little bit about Partners Group. Who, who is Partners Group? Some of the stats that you can glean. Um, you know, you've got 19 offices around the world. I think you've got more than 900 employees now. And some of the data I was looking at, maybe a little aged, indicated you're managing $54 billion under advice, focusing on private markets, um, you know, which makes you a really, really big player in this area. Can you sort of elaborate on that? It's actually north of $80 billion Australian dollars um, okay. these days. Indeed, we're, we're one of the, the major private market investors across the world, and it's taken us some time to build that business. So we're partners who exist since 23 years, and we've been in private equity for more than 20 years. And the relationships, the deal flow, the ability to source transactions, but also the experience um, to assess them, which are the ones you want to invest in, which ones do you want to pass on, is something that takes time in private equity. At the same time, the offices, we, we, we obviously like Australia, but there's very concrete reasons why we have those offices, because in order to source transactions, you've got to be close to where the deals are, and you can't just sit in Switzerland and wait for the deals to come to you, essentially. Now, one of the things I saw in the 
reading notes that I had was that you reject something like 97% of deals that come across or, or, or across or, or put up to the investment committee. Is that about right? That's about right. That's essentially the business we're in. We get all those ideas and it, it's about filtering them out and you always look for something that that, inval- that that makes a deal not work and therefore you end up with very few that in the end you will execute. And the network of uh, Partners Group is huge given the amount of investments. I think I had you know, direct investments of around 500 or north of and private market investments at, at over 760 um, and 300 advisory board seats. So the network for that deal flow and experience is massive. I think that's essentially the network is, is, is what creates the deal flow and it's the lifeblood of, of private market investing. So simply spoken, the more you see, the more selective you can be, the better you can invest. Private equity, if we could just talk about that a little bit, most uh, people would be familiar with the asset class, would probably see it as a little bit more risky um, and also see it as something that's really the domain of institutions, private offices or very, very high net worth individuals because typically you've had situations where it's lumpy, you need a lot of money to go into a transaction, um, it's hard to get diversification, you also have complications around the, the company doesn't need all the money you want to put in at the same time, so you've got money sitting on the sidelines um, and you might have your money tied up for eight or so years, so it's quite illiquid, which adds another element of risk. But maybe you can talk about how Partners Group has solved for that problem. Um, I'm happy. I'm happy to. So I think nowadays most of the things that you mentioned that make private equity investments, let's say, administratively complicated for individual investors, that's been challenges that come from a model of commitment-based funds where you get capital calls over a number of years that has been developed uh, more for venture capital type of investors in the 90s now. You think about partners group today, we invest in about 150 transactions every year. So that's three deals a week. And if you have this massive deal flow, then today we're in a position to offer private equity content within a format of funds that have monthly or quarterly dealing where we take care of the investment level, almost like you're being used to from the public market side. And with the platforms today, some of the most established private equity investors in the world can offer that type of service or product to investors. If we could talk a little bit specifically about the Global Partners Fund uh, and that strategy, and you know, I disclose that that's a fund that I'm invested into, um, but if you could describe the mandate and what it does and how it does it, please. The Global Value Fund does offer diversified private equity exposure to investors and it does so by having the main part of its portfolio invested in direct transactions so there's no additional layer or manager but we invest directly in companies most of the time the equity there's also some debt in that fund as well to diversify so you're sourcing the director you're sourcing identifying uh, and investing mainly private equity and sometimes debt into companies of about what size? 
depends about, but typically and the EBITDA of those companies would be a bit north of 50 million. So very established companies, profitable companies, it's not a venture type of game, um, but cash flow positive companies. And that part is then complemented by uh, a more a fund-oriented part, where on one hand you have a primary bid that's diversifying the portfolio, allocates to niche managers, specialists, where partners group might not have the presence in the market to do the deals directly and work with a partner. And the very interesting bit on top of that is the secondary part of the portfolio. So here, that's a strategy where we buy interests in funds of other investors who have committed to the 10-year type of structures and maybe after five years they decide they want to change their portfolio, their public equity has fallen, so they want to get rid of these exposures. But as you know, you can't sell them because you're locked for 10 years. And this is when Partners Group comes in and can bid at a discount to the fair value and say, hey, we'll take it off your books, yes. but we're going to pay you 80 cents on the dollar. And that's a strategy that can provide very attractive returns in private equity while still giving you diversified exposure to portfolios of many funds and assets. It's a bit cyclical though. So it's something that when there is a lot of liquidity need, when there is a market downturn, those investments provide the most attractive investment opportunities. I think most Australians would be familiar with industry funds who manage a vast amount of our superannuation pool in Australia. And it's interesting to see, and even something like the Future Fund, uh, which has been praised of recent times for its great performance and its uh, skewed weighting towards private equity and lots of people are pointing towards that being a source of our performance. But equally so, I think in the secondaries that you're talking about, it's quite common to see a change of uh, chief investment officer or a team in an industry fund where they come in and have a different view, whether they want to then move in or out of those that you're saying presents opportunities in a down cycle to buy some of these assets at, at below fair value or at cheaper prices. Is that right? Yeah, if you think about it, it's absolutely correct. If you think about it, it's a bit like IPOs. If the market is rough, people typically pull their IPOs, so you don't want to sell into a rough market. And similarly, if you have good companies, you don't sell them in 2009, 2010. So the secondaries are really the bit that in those market environments provide the best opportunities and also an ability to deploy capital right away. Can we just circle back a little bit to the primaries part of that? Um, can you describe in a little bit more detail, is that actually buying into private equity investment, uh, a private equity fund where you may have somebody on the ground in a location or a niche with key expertise that's complementary to your own? That's exactly right. So here we invest in, in other funds and funds of other managers who typically have either a geographical or an industry expertise. They also tend to operate in investing into smaller companies, an area where Partners Group doesn't focus on, and thereby they complement the portfolio quite nicely to what we do on the direct side where we're in the upper mid-market space across the globe on one hand, and then on the secondary side where you get more of a large cap biased exposure as it's the big funds that are typically being, being sold by institutional investors. Roberto, can you talk to me a little bit about diversification, how you think about diversification and manage diversification within that portfolio? 
the key to diversification, I guess, besides having a broad platform so you can ensure you don't run too high of a concentration by, for, for example, the positions that we take are 1% to 2% of the fund size. So there's many positions over the years in the fund. That, that's one thing that is very important because it's often the businesses that go well that then tend to grow in net asset value. So you can't start at 5%, then you double in a good case, and then you're at 10% of the fund. This is why we start small, so that's a prerequisite. But the other dimension, which is often neglected, or we don't know from the public market side, is the vintage year diversification. Yeah. So you got to make sure that your portfolio at any point in time has a nice composition of investment years. Because the nature of a buyout is that in the beginning, the risk profile is a bit higher. And as you then reduce the debt throughout the holding, the risk profile falls as you, as you pay back debt throughout the lifetime. So we look at not having more than 25% in a single vintage, so we're always nicely split. And, and the vintage is defined as the year. So it's, in it's, any one year, you wouldn't have 25% of the portfolio in, in one deal or one year's lot of deals. Exactly. Like a wine collection. Exactly, because that's, that's always, that's, um, to be frank, a mistake many have made in 2006, 2007, leading up to the GFC, that most of the portfolios were in 2006, 2007 deals, most vulnerable to a downturn by ensuring we only invest 25% as a maximum in a single vintage. We make sure there's always companies in the portfolio, the majority is composed of companies that have been through the deal already for a couple of years, so are also nicely de-risked and therefore balance the portfolio. Roberto, the performance has been very strong in Australia, I'd say, to the end of 2018. I, I want to say a compound annual growth rate of 9.9% with very low volatility. Um, how I, I think there's some people who would point to that and look at the historical growth of that as just being very, very smooth, and they wonder how... Uh, accurate that is or what sort of feeling people can get or understanding behind the validity behind that very, very uh, metronome-like consistent growth given the lack of, um, uh, I guess, transparency that these assets aren't always being mark to market or similar. What, what sort of uh, commentary can you give around that? Actually, we're, we're, we're fully transparent on the valuations. It's probably just a bit cumbersome to, to work through all the different transactions. So the way how it works is that companies are valued based on their fundamentals. So yes. there's fair value and it's, the standards are they're derived by IFRS. Essentially values companies by their profitability, so the EBITDA for most industries, and then applies a fair market multiple which we derive from public and private comparables. So it's a very systematic process. As such, it depends mainly on how the profits of the companies that we hold develop. And in turn is more connected to how the economy goes rather than what you see in the public market side where markets can trade based on sentiment, single stocks can double or can half, and then there's someone tweeting, changing the market. Sure. Those type of sentiments or those overreactions we don't get. So um, you don't get the big overreactions such as those um, in the fourth quarter of 
2018, where we saw you know, the political risks around Brexit uh, and also the, the trade with China, et cetera, lead to markets being down across the board, you know, 15, 20% in some industries. You avoid that because the market sentiment isn't in play. It's really just the fundamental valuations of those businesses. Absolutely. The businesses have been doing well in Q4. The EBITDA has been continuing to rise. Now, if in 2019 we'd see a slowdown and businesses grow somewhat slower than they did in 2018, we might see an impact there so that our NAVs grow a bit slower. But it's always tied to how the businesses will do rather than to, to, to emotions or, or that, we, that we observe on the public market. Now, I believe the fund has the ability to gate or lock it up for the protection of those investors um, if there is a run or a real, real dislocation in markets. What sort of um, circumstances could you see the fund being gated and what is, it, what is its history with that respect? Um, let, let me, the gating features, I think, are very important because effectively, they make sure that no single investor and no group of investors can force the fund into fire selling assets. Because once you become a seller on that secondary market that we talked about before, you're actually going to take a hit on mm -hmm. net asset value. So that's something we want to avoid. And this is where the gating features help us protect the fund so we don't have to engage in those sales. But in a scenario of redemptions, we can run off the portfolio in an ordinary fashion. Um, if I think about the history though, we make sure we stress the limited liquidity of the fund. We make sure we only onboard investors who understand that. And that has helped the fund uh, to not enact any gates since, since its inception pre-GFC. Pre so we've been working hard on, on positioning the fund, explaining the liquidity or the illiquidity features so people invest with the right horizon. And that so far has paid off as in our investor base, having been very stable over the life of the fund. Roberta, there's a bit of discussion within uh, the market industry that a lot of the valuations in the private equity world are becoming quite stretched, mirroring as they have been in public markets. Um, where do you see valuations at the moment? Look, I think that's a very good question and uh, there's two ways to look at it. On an absolute basis, so the numbers that we see, the multiples that we buy at, without a doubt, valuations are high. And that's also the reason why when we underwrite today, so when we buy a business, we require the teams to model a multiple contraction. So we force them to assume to sell the business at a lower valuation in four to five years from now. So we focus a lot on value creation, on taking board seats on working with the companies to increase the EBITDA. That's the natural way how you can create returns in such a market environment. Now, if I look at the valuation topic from on a relative basis and compare it to, to public equity, I have to say that typically in private equity, we are a bit more range bound versus public markets. And it's again about emotions, what I said before, in a private equity, in a buyout transaction, you have an institutional buyer, a seller, you need to have a lender to agree to the valuation. And that kind of keeps things in check. 
So something that we've seen, for example, in technology stocks where you just have prices run away and trading based on fantasy, it's just not something that can be the basis for a private equity valuation. At the same, so you tend to have a relatively attractive valuation at the peak of the market of private equity versus public. At the same time, though, you never get the type of bargain prices in private equity that you got in public markets in, in 2009, for example. So it's a bit it's a bit more range bound because it doesn't have those overreactions to either side. And therefore, I think from a relative basis, valuations compared to public markets don't look bad at all. And how are you allocating at the moment from a geography and also industry perspective? And just maybe talk about the diversification with the portfolio with regard to those two aspects. From a geography, uh, geographic perspective, uh, we focus on developed markets. There's obviously in the US, the growth is stronger than it is in Europe. So it provides us in tendency with more investment opportunities there for businesses that we can grow. From an instrument perspective, secondaries towards a peak of the markets are more of an underweight because there's few sellers, there's many buyers. So the discounts to fair value are limited in this market environment. We're kind of keeping dry powder for investing once volatility kicks in. And otherwise, we diversify on the primary side. It's a good time to, to get exposure to group managers to, to diversify the portfolio and, and shape its risk profile for the cycle to come. Roberto, could you talk us through and maybe use an example, if you can, of um, the, the sort of deal process in terms of how a company or a transaction comes to you and how it may flow through and just to bring a bit of color to our listeners around your process. So to understand our investment process, I need to quickly elaborate on the investment committees. So there's a, a global investment committee taking the final decision on transaction, but there is also what we call a specialist investment committee or a screening investment committee that acts as a first layer to discuss deals, to wet out details before transactions are passed to the Global Investment Committee. So overall, there's uh, four stages. It starts with a stage that we call teaser, which describes the opportunity and the type of business. The rough valuation is very short and it gives us the opportunity to give the deal teams guidance about the relative value of the transaction. Is this a segment we like from our top-down views? Is this something we encourage them to spend more time on? So we guide them to a certain degree of where to spend their time and what, what industries and what sub-industries. And the next session is a first check, which already you talk about a 50-60 page document for a direct transaction where we discuss the, the deal in detail and then give also the questions and give the guidance and have the areas to focus on where do we see further need of diligence, where do we have doubts. And that then ends up in a preliminary investment recommendation where we then aim at taking the commercial decision. So that's the big document, way more than 100 pages in most cases. Lots of specific analyses that the teams came back with that we requested from them earlier at first check stage. And that should be the document that allows us to, to take a commercial decision, whether we want to invest or not. The investment recommendation as last stage, 
then also weeds all out all the details relating to the execution of the transaction, the legals, and all the open points that remained and subject to which we took the commercial decision. So it's quite a cumbersome process. I think in reality, though, takes us normally, I would say, three to six months to go through that. Typically before that, there's a long phase of the team getting in touch with management to even source the transaction and then executing thereafter probably takes us another couple of, of weeks or months depending of, on what approvals are required. So it's something that you need to plan ahead in terms of sourcing, in terms of capacity, in terms of also managing the portfolio. So you, you make sure then that the, the Global Value Fund is always nicely invested. When I'm listening to this process, I'm thinking of this very long uh, process that may take a lot of time and thinking that maybe, I was actually thinking it was going to be longer than the three to six months that you were talking about and it might have put you at a competitive disadvantage. Um, however, hearing you articulate it, I'm, I'm sort of picturing this sort of Swiss precision team uh, that has a very well-run process versus I've seen very small stage private equity deals and almost venture capital deals that can take a lot longer than that. So do you see yourself not having any competitive disadvantage in terms of timing because of your size and scale and process? Look, at the end of the day, I guess the more than 1,000 people that we employ, we, it, it, it's because it's a bit of a numbers game. To a certain degree, private markets are not scalable. It's not like in public markets where you can say, I take twice the size of the position in a large cap stock. We actually need to have deal teams that diligence those transactions and do, do the leg work. And that, that's, that's hard work. And I think besides the numbers, it's also about the spirit. So in those deal teams, it's important that when it's the time to get the work done, that the people just stay in and, and, and do the work, right? So it's going to be very intense weeks for them when they work on a transaction. They'll get the breather then afterwards, but maybe another team is, is in the hot phase, so to say, of a deal. But I agree, that's key. Yeah, you got the manpower and also the, the motivated teams to, to diligence those transactions. And also, quite honestly, sometimes deal with the frustrations and they then go in the investment committee and... As, as we talked about before, right, 97% are in the end declines. And that's not easy to digest if you're a professional in that space and, and, and you get the declines and the global IC is so critical. But we got to do that because in the end, it's only the fewest deals that, that pass the test. That's very helpful. Can you perhaps uh, give us an example of a company that's been through that process where it's been successful and then maybe one to contrast where it hasn't been and you've had learnings from that? One example that comes to mind is Techem. That's uh, a sub-metering service, sur uh, sub service company for heating devices in, in apartments in, in Germany. It's a business that we liked a lot from a relative value perspective, very defensive, almost infrastructure-like characteristics with long-term service contracts. So it's something we've been very keenly pursuing given where valuations are today given where the business cycle is today provides you with a certain downside protection that's been one of the bigger transactions we invested for the fund in 2018 and if i think there the process was about 
six to nine months more because it was a more complex transaction. We've been busy the, the whole first half in getting our minds clear about the investment decision from a commercial perspective. And then we invested sometimes in September. Examples that didn't go so well, um, I'm thinking about one of the bigger secondary projects where we diligenced, and those tend to be also very cumbersome in terms of what you got to look at. So it was an institutional investor selling a portfolio of more than 30 funds, which in turn have probably about 300 companies, and we got to analyze all of them bottom-up to get a sense of the value of the portfolio. Did the work, diligence did, had several IC stages. But then in the end, it just happened to have competing bidders who bid at a higher price. But then we didn't end up to get the transaction. That's unfortunately sometimes also something you have to deal with. Not everything that we want to get, we also do get because there is at some point a level of price where we just don't want to compete anymore because we think the return risk is not attractive enough. Roberto, it appears from the outside that many private equity firms are holding investments for longer. Is that something that you're seeing? And also, how does it affect your portfolio and how do you think about that? It's a very interesting trend. And as a matter of fact, we're also doing that and, 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 and looking at those long-term value assets, as we call them. And the reason is very simple. If you have a really good business, and you think about the value creation that we perform on those businesses. So taking board seats, improving the cost structure of a company, the supply chains, and trying to find new markets, buying add-ons. Many of those things after four to five years, and that's when a typical closed-ended fund needs to go into selling mode again. With many of those value creation, if this were not even done, there's so much more potential. So if you really have a great business in a market-leading position, why not hold it longer to then capitalize on the value creation, fully being able to also engage in more long-term value creation projects that would not fit the five-year time frame. And what is five years if you think about changing things in a company? And... It's also something that on the other hand, there's a lot of client demand because people, pension funds say, hey, we're investing for 40 years. Why are you keeping selling companies and then buying others that are similar after five years and, and, and churning them? There's also a certain cost associated with it. And it's better the devil you know. That's the other thing, right? You've got a business that you know about. There's no, not going to be any surprises. And... As you know, the Global Value Fund is one of the evergreen offerings as well. So that's also one of the funds that can perfectly participate in those longer-term transactions because there is no intrinsic need to sell after five years. So it's something that we do for a number of our funds and a number of our mandates. And it's for those type of businesses that have a market-leading position that you want to hold for longer, quite honestly. Roberto, thank you. I think that's a fantastic place to, to wind up. Thanks for joining us Inside the Rope and, and your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.